You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At first glance, the game of chess is simple in its presentation. 16 pieces placed side by side on a board of 64 black and white spaces. But when those pieces are placed in the hands of true masters, they transcend the simplicity of a game, and it becomes a war between two opposing factions. But instead of a war fought with guns and manpower, it's fought with skill and strategy. Chess becomes a cerebral war, in the pursuit of intellectual dominance. So what happens when the chessboard transcends into reality and the players are the world's two leading superpowers? And what happens when Andrew Lloyd Webber's former lyricist and the two guys from ABBA take inspiration from that superpower-backed battle on the chessboard and turn it into a commentary on Reagan-era politics? And more importantly, how does Chess the Musical serve as the endnote for a 45-year battle of innovation, espionage, fear, and a power struggle for national dominance? I'm Brendan from Wait in the Wings. And I'm Diva from Musical Hell. And this show calls for a double take. ourselves to win an even greater victory this November in 1972. And if, if, if the Russians boo their, their players, if the fans, Russians boo their players like some of the Canadian fans, I'm not saying all of them, some of them booed us, then I'll come back and I'll apologize to each one of the Canadians. But Let us have peaceful competition, not only in producing the best factories, but in producing better lives for our people. To fully discuss chess, we first have to talk about the political landscape on which it was built. While they were allies in the Second World War, by 1972, the battle for superiority between the US and the USSR was entering a new chapter. There had always been a level of suspicion and unease between the two nations that spawned from vastly different political philosophies. Democracy and communism. Once the war was finished, the Soviet Union slowly receded from the other European allies and erected the Iron Curtain, 
a political boundary separating East Germany from the West. This was a move that effectively sealed the Soviet Union off from the outside world by drawing a literal and metaphorical line in the sand of East versus West. And to make matters worse, potential nuclear destruction was waiting in the wings. For much of the 40s, the United States held a monopoly on the creation of WMDs. But going into the 50s, the Soviet Union left the world in shock by detonating their first nuclear bomb. Suddenly, the USSR had changed the rules, and the conflict between the two countries began to reach dangerous heights. And yet, through all this hysteria, neither country fired a single warhead. Unlike other historical wars, the Cold War was never fought on a battlefield. It was a war of strategy, and who had the bigger brain. And by 1972, the Cold War found its new battleground, the chessboard. Due to the Soviet Union having strained relations with China on one side and the U.S. stuck in Vietnam on the other, the 1970s saw the détente, a brief pause in open hostility between the two nations. The communist and capitalist powers weren't exactly ready to be friends, but they did manage to interact on more diplomatic terms. Finally tonight, how many Russians does it take to screw in a light bulb? Or have you heard the one about the collective farmer's daughter? They're Russian jokes, and President Reagan loves them. This warming relationship between the USSR and the United States was chilled when, in 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected as president of the U.S. A staunch anti-communist, Reagan's strained relationship with the USSR became what some deemed a second Cold War. We will never compromise our principles and standards. We will never give away our freedom. We will never abandon our belief in God. It was during this final surge of hostility that the musical chess began to take shape. Going back to the mid-1970s, Tim Rice had wanted to adapt a musical focused on the Cold War. Initially, he planned to partner with Andrew Lloyd Webber to write about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Sadly, the world was robbed of this production, and presumably the chance to watch anamorphic missiles dance from Cuba to America, when Rice decided to switch focus. While there were multiple high-profile confrontations during the Cold War, one that carried potentially the most gravity was one of the most modest. When it came to national pastimes, the Americans had baseball, while the Soviets had chess. In the 1970s, it was well known that the Soviets were unstoppable, especially after they defeated the entire world. In large part, their dominance could be linked to USSR culture. While Americans prided themselves on their individualism, the Soviets never placed one above the other. So, they often played as a team, while the Americans would go at it alone. And in the end, the USSR strategy kind of worked. The Soviets were ruthless and kept a stronghold on the World Chess Championship for nearly 24 years. That is until an American chess protege named Bobby Fischer came into the picture. In what would go down in history as the match of the century, Fischer challenged Soviet champion Boris Spassky. The United States saw this showdown in Iceland as a powerful venue to stick it to the Soviet Union. 
Emboldened by Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, Fisher and the others knew the best way to humiliate the Soviets was by beating them at their own game. The drama and political manipulation behind the match spoke to Rice. At the advice of producer Richard Voss, Rice pitched the idea to Benny Anderson and Bjorn Ulvaeus of the Swedish pop group ABBA. The main characters in chess draw heavily on the real players in the 1970s chess world. The American, who would be named Freddie Trumper for the stage version, was unambiguously based on Bobby Fischer in his youth, abrasiveness, and open contempt for the Soviets. The Russian, Anatoly Sergeyevsky, drew on multiple Soviet players. Fischer's match-of-the-century opponent Spassky, Anatoly Karpov, who won the world championship in 1975 after Fischer forfeited by refusing to accept the terms of the match, and Viktor Korknoi, who defected from the USSR in 1976, leaving his wife and child behind. In the match of the century, the Soviet and American governments were both fighting to affirm their intellectual dominance through Fischer and Spassky. The musical would take this dichotomy one step further by using the chess grandmasters as a way to exemplify the combating ideologies and lifestyles of their two countries. Freddie Trumper lives up to his name and embodies the excessive, material, and braggadocio attitude that had come to define Ronald Reagan's America. Anatoly, meanwhile, embodies the cracks that were beginning to show in the USSR's culture. His arc is focused on the conflict between his commitments to others, namely his country and Svetlana, his wife, versus pursuing his own desires. The pressure from his Soviet superiors, duty to a wife he's fallen out of love with, and his feelings for Florence, Freddie's second, all weigh on him in various ways. The question Anatoly faces is, who will he play the game for? His country? His family? or himself. In Freddie's first main solo, One Night in Bangkok, he takes the audience on an arrogant tour through the nightlife of the Thai capital, looking down on the culture and sex tourism he surveys, positioning himself as the superior intellectual among hedonists. The musical style and instrumentation taps into the sound of 1980s synth-pop, made popular by bands like New Order, Depeche Mode, and Erasure. The sound is bathed in flamboyance, color, and glamour that's only further complemented by a neon set design which relishes in the excess and riches of 1980s capitalism. Freddie's condescending and haughty personality is on full view with this song, which he essentially uses as a way to say, America's here, you uncivilized swine. You're welcome. But much like the country during this time, while Freddie exudes confidence on the exterior, he's filled with deep internalized feelings of inadequacy. This duality comes to light in his second solo, Pity the Child, a number that displays the broken loneliness Freddie hides with his dismissive attitude. His bravado is revealed to be a cultivated shield from the pain of an absent father and neglectful mother neither of whom appreciated the skills that had made him famous. Both songs reflect Freddie and America's duality, while also serving as a study of the double-edged sword that comes from independence and individualism. In contrast, Anatoly's disillusionment with the subservience and conformity of the Soviet Union is demonstrated early on with Where I Want to Be, 
He is a top player in his game and a favored son of his country, yet he feels unfulfilled and dreads the moment when his usefulness to the state runs out. Unlike Freddy's high-energy, optimistic, pop-infused stylings in One Night in Bangkok, Anatoly's is colder and more sensitive in its approach. Where I Want to Be draws more heavily on the romantic classical stylings of composers like Tchaikovsky and Stravinsky. The song holds a sense of beauty from the game he loves, while he also focuses on the unease and the consequences he could suffer if he lost his love. For Freddy, a loss would mean a ding in his self-confidence, while if Anatoly were to lose, he very well could be killed or exiled. So, rather than wait for the moment he's no longer useful to the USSR, Anatoly defects and defends his decision in the Act 1 finale anthem. The title is well chosen, as musically it reflects many a country's official pay-on to itself. But lyrically, Anatoly describes a devotion to something that lies beyond political boundaries and maneuvering. My land's only borders lie around my heart. In the end, Anatoly can only remain true to himself. A sentiment Florence tearfully echoes after man's petty nations separates her from the man she loves. And Florence serves as an interesting bridge between the East and the West. She was born in Budapest, but was raised in America due to the 1956 Soviet occupation that killed her family. She's not fully Hungarian, but not fully American either. This places her in a position where she can see the best and the worst in both. And much like Florence's duality in opinion, Anatoly and Freddy each view her in a vastly different light. Anatoly sees Florence as an escape, someone who awakens a sense of passion in him that he hadn't felt since he was young. But while wrapped up in his love for Florence and his decision to flee the Soviet Union, he also abandons his wife and child whereas Freddy views Florence as someone he's dependent on to validate him. She's one of the only people who truly understands him, but Freddy takes her for granted. Then, much like his parents, she leaves him. In a sense, Freddy and Anatoly mirror their respective countries during the Cold War in the way that both sides are never fully good or fully bad. Sure, Anatoly shows admirable morals when it comes to standing up to his government to uphold the integrity of the game he loves, but he still makes a questionable decision when it comes to his opportunistic sacrifice of his family in pursuit of a better life for himself. Likewise, Freddy is brash and unlikable in his condescending behavior towards others, but as the story advances, he becomes more humane, and even decides to help Anatoly train to win the world championship a tournament that his government wants him to throw. While the two characters appear to be polar opposites, chess and their internal desire to win is the thing that links them. However, despite this, neither Freddy or Anatoly play the game for the main reason they should be, because they love it. Both characters are instead propelled by more external motivators. In the vein of autonomy and capitalism, Freddy wants to win to prove his dominance, stick it to the Soviets, and make a ton of money in the process. While Anatoly's reason is rooted in playing under autocratic rule, and communism where he has to win because his government won't tolerate anything less. Instead of being a showcase for sportsmanship and mental discipline, chess instead became a game of two governments using their respected players in a larger conflict of power, humiliation, and political supremacy. 
It's this realization that sparks a renewed love of the game and leads to Freddy and Anatoly coming together as a way to beat the people who corrupted it. The way these manipulators took over the game was the driving force in Rice's creation of chess, creating a story inspired by politics and passion. When the show debuted on the West End, it did so at a time when the Cold War was beginning to enter its final chapter. In 1989, the physical symbol of a divided Europe fell with the tearing down of the Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall, thanks in part to a political communion between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, and a botched announcement by the German Democratic Republic that accidentally opened the border between East and West Germany, making the wall and the line obsolete. But everyone knows that the main reason was because of David Hasselhoff performing Looking for Freedom and single-handedly defeating communism. By the time a McDonald's opened in Pushkin Square in 1991, it was clear that the war was over. In a case of poetry, Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky competed again in a historic rematch the following year in 1992. Fischer won, but at great cost. He traveled to Yugoslavia for the competition, defying George H.W. Bush's executive order imposing sanctions on the country. Fisher would never return to the United States. The man who had once been held up as the free world's answer to the Soviet machine would have his country abandon him and spend the last years of his life in obscurity descending deeper into madness, fueled by anti-Semitism and approving commentary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Likewise, following his loss to Fischer in 1972, Spassky started to become bitter, and the Soviets' disappointment in him led to them turning their backs on him. While no bullets may have been shed during the Cold War, the two countries' ammunition came in the form of their people, with Freddy and Anatoly once again mirroring Fischer and Spassky as nothing more than pawns on a battlefield of 64 squares. The players found themselves placed in an unconventional situation for an equally unconventional conflict, a conflict of democracy and totalitarianism, of individualism and conformity. Freddy and Anatoly not only embody this conflict, but in a way help to preserve it. Chess has transcended from a topical musical of current events to a period piece about the tension and contrasts of the two forces at odds with each other during the Cold War. The show in a way predicted what would need to happen to end the conflict, with Gorbachev mirroring Anatoly and distancing himself from his previous Soviet leaders in pursuit of something bigger, and Reagan responding on guard much like Freddy. It was only after he was able to overcome his indoctrined hate based in fear that the two would come together to strategize the endgame. With several commanding lead roles, a strong supporting cast, and at least one song that the Boomer and Gen X sets will recognize from the radio, Chess has definitely outlived the political theater that inspired it. Chess was an extremely bold piece to make during this time, but by daring to humanize both sides, it helped to show that during the Cold War, whether they meant to or not, everybody was playing the game, but nobody's rules were the same. Chess also further highlighted the advantages of the individual over the collective. While his motivations were questionable, Freddy was allowed to rise above many of the issues by making his own decisions 
and in turn, wound up liberating Anatoly to claim his own independence. For while borders and countries are man-made concepts, the inner will of the humans living in those boundaries can't be manufactured or fully manipulated. In the end, though it may take generations, morality and fighting for the greater good is the only gambit to guarantee a win. Congratulations to this week's Patreon Supreme, Haley Longo. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Haley Longo, and you can feed that appetite for live theater by checking out SAS Performing Arts Company for virtual readings and performances. Also thanks to Diva from Musical Hell for helping with the insurmountable challenge of recapping the Cold War in eight pages. If you want more Broadway video content like this, be sure to check out her channel now. And of course, thank you to Sammy Kornecki, Mark S., and Ethan for suggesting we cover chess, and to all of our fantastic patrons on Patreon. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.